Welcome to the rooftop. It's a New Year's Eve edition, 2023. Title of this episode is Looking Back, Leaning In. And just for you, boys and girls, it's a driveway edition. Yep, you got it. My leather personnel carriers are carrying me up and down the driveway out in uh, beautiful Florida countryside as I do this podcast with you. Now, this is also, it's a special, special holiday segment here. Um, it's a six dog Christmas here at the man household. Does anybody know what a six dog Christmas is? That's where all three of your sons and their ladies come home for the holidays and there's six friggin' dogs in the house, not to mention God knows how many people. And it is, you know what? It is the most awesome thing in the world. It is, uh, my wife and I, we, uh, my mom and dad are here as well. You know, one coming out of a cancer battle in 2023, one, uh, just starting it. For the third time, my father. And so they're here. Our boys are here. Their ladies are here. Six dogs. It is a six dog Christmas in the man household. And the other night we were, um, it was Friday, Christmas Eve, and we were doing um, our appetizers. We have a lot of traditions at, at the holiday season, much like many of you do. And we were making appetizers, sausage balls, and all kinds of fun things and uh, music playing. And my wife and I just looked at each other, you know, and we didn't, we didn't need to say a word. We both knew exactly uh, what we were thinking. And with all the chaos, all the craziness, uh, it is a, a six-dog Christmas, and it is awesome. And so now we're in that beautiful period of time in between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, I call it the high ground week. And it's the reason I call it the high ground week is because you're able to, in, the, in special ops and in the military in general, when you would go on long-range movements, you would move across varied terrain. You would move across um, really dense uh, patches of forest. You would move through ravines and valleys. You would move through swamps and other obstacles, up little hills and down little hills, some big hills. And then sometimes you would get up to a piece of high ground where you could actually take your ruck off. You could um, drink some water. You could look back on where you'd been and kind of assess uh, your route and then peer over the hill, the big hill, the big piece of high ground and get a look at where you're going. Maybe not super clear, but you could see to some degree where you've been and where you're going. And, and I believe, I choose to believe that this week between Christmas and New Year's offers us, at least in the Western world, a unique vantage point to look back with some degree of accuracy on where we've been and to look forward on where we're going. And so the title of this episode is looking back, leaning in, a rooftop year in review. But the idea is to do that, to look back like that and inform our thinking, inform our actions, inform what we commit to for 2024. Because I do believe there is a difference between commitments and resolutions. And I'm not a walking Webster's dictionary, so I might struggle with it a little bit. But I do know that resolutions in their current Western modern civil society form don't fare very well uh, when they are put into execution. People make resolutions like crazy on New Year's Eve. We, we are creatures of change. We want to we want to change. We want to do better, but then we just can't seem to sustain that change. And as a result, our resolutions go the way of the dinosaur, usually within a few weeks, if not a few days of us doing it. But commitments, commitments, promises to ourselves are seem to be something different. Uh, if we can if we can commit to something, uh, based on and informed by actions and crystallized lessons of the past, I view that as a different thing. And if our plan of and and and, and execution process is 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 deliberate and intentional, then there's a lot of chance that that it can work. And so that's what this episode is about. This episode's for you. This this walking driveway episode is a chance for you to kick back a little bit, get your favorite toddy. Let your toes uncurl, and let's just kind of talk about uh, the, the, the last year. And I'm, I'm going to share with you my perspective on my last year, good, bad, and the ugly. And then I, I'm going to make a little pivot into some thoughts and commitments uh, that I have for next year. I like to name my year, and I've, I've named my year. I learned this. I attribute this to my good friend, Kimberly, who, uh, who, who showed me that she names her years, and I started doing that myself. So so I've told you about that piece of high ground. We're, we're up on that piece of high ground right now. Kind of close your eyes and allow yourself to see that. You've been walking a lot. Walked through some tough terrain. 
you've walked for a year, you've covered a lot of miles, you're, scuff, you're scuffed up, and now you're able to drop that heavy pack, kind of do the rucksack flop back on it, take your socks and shoe, your shoes off and let your feet air out, drink some water, uh, bring, out a, bring out a bar and take a bite and just kind of look back at where you've been, looking down into that valley, looking down into that low ground, the twinkling lights, the the, the vicious canyons that you had to almost fell into and the, and the swamp where there were all kinds of snakes and critters that you barely avoided, but somehow you did. And here you are on, t- on top of that piece of high ground, looking back with some clarity on your year and, and now able to, at some point after you do that, uh, to, to see what you've learned that would inform your route going forward, you can roll over and kind of peer over that piece of high ground into the future. And the further out you look, the hazier and cloudier it gets. But you can make some things out. You can make out some ridgelines. You can make out some obstacles. You can make out some roads and some lights twinkling down there as well. It's a unique place to be, disinflection point. And uh, so I believe it's here that I'll step off and share with you some things uh, for my last year. And hopefully you could locate yourself in some of these. I, I do believe that what's personal is universal. So I'm going to try to do like I always do with you on these podcasts. A lot of times I think I get more out of them than you do. <laughs> but it's to share um, as much as I can. Take the body armor off and share some perspective. You know, the miles I've run, the scars I've endured, the lessons I've learned. I feel like I've been with a lot of you on them. And you've either been rooting for me or encouraging me or even at my shoulder as we've gone through these ups and downs. So it only feels right that I share these with you at this inflection point. But why? Why? Because this whole podcast is about finding out what your Pineapple Express is, what my Pineapple Express is, your upswing, as Robert Putnam calls it, so that we can lead our family, our community, our business, our our nation uh, into better days, right? Isn't that really what we're trying to do? Isn't that really the best that it gets? is to try to lead ourselves into better days. And, and that's really what I'm certainly going for here. So without any further ado, I'm going to share with some of the things with you, some of the things I did in 2023. Um, first of all, I, uh, I made a promise. Uh, I honored a promise. It was a promise to our Afghan allies who we abandoned in the summer of 2021. As a nation, we let, we abandoned the allies who uh, stood at our shoulder for uh, damn near 20 years. And this past year, uh, this past August 15 and August 30, 31, marked the uh, two-year anniversary. Uh, it marked the two-year anniversary of our 13 who were killed at Abbey Gate. Um, and it was gutting for me, and I think for many of my peers, it was actually uh, harder this time around um, to, to actually, I don't know if it just had more time to sink in, but the, the notion that we had left so many of our Afghan allies behind, commandos, special forces, interpreters, female judges, uh, politicians, people who had actually stood up for their country, and are, are now either, you know, forced to be co-opted into the Taliban government, um, killed, executed, made to disappear, or they've come here and they're struggling here in the United States. Yes, they're free, but, you know, it's a hell of a, hell of a shift. Many of them would probably rather be back in their homeland. And, you know, there's the people that said, hey, screw them, fuck them, they should have fought. It's their own fault for not fighting. You know, I, I'm sorry, I just, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I mean, I do think we have approached the time when it is time for Afghans to resist. But the way that we left those allies, the way that we pulled their contracting support, the way that we pulled their aviation, there were at least a large contingent of special operators, Afghan special operators who were fighting to the last round, and we completely bailed on their ass. And we completely bailed on the Afghan government with the Doha Accords. It was a, it was a wrong-headed move. Um, by Trump, followed through with by Biden. I'm, 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 you know, I'm not going to go too deep on this, but we are approaching an election year, and I am kind of done with the, uh, with both of these guys claiming, you know, self righteousness when it comes to this Afghanistan problem set. 
Uh, they were both underwhelming. Biden owns the withdrawal, and he will always own the withdrawal. It was botched. It was terrible. And he will always own that. And it will become more and more of a stain on his um, record as we endure more and more secondary and tertiary effects from that poor decision. But make no mistake, uh, Trump's decision with the Doha Accord was wrongheaded. Um, he was headed in a similar direction, and, and he should not get a pass on that because this is about the issue. And, and, and so one of the things that I've learned this past year, and, and it's really brought it home for me, is that most politicians out there are just, man, they're full of shit. Like they're just not standing up for you and me. They're not standing up for the Constitution. They're not just speaking the truth around an issue because of the issue. Rather, it's, it's partisan to the point of, uh, you know, my flag in the ground for your, my guy, your flag in the ground for your guy. And it's so rigid and polarized that it's just, it's off-putting, honestly. And uh, I don't want to get too far off track here, but, you know, the bottom line is the way that we left our Afghan allies, to me, was egregious. Um, it was not the way that we should work with our allies. We have built a multi-decade uh, systemic habit of wholesale abandonment of our allies going all the way back to Vietnam with the Montagnards. And ultimately, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bite us in the ass, man, in, in, in a big way. I'll talk more about that uh, a little bit later on, but you know, it is the two year anniversary or it was, uh, I had the opportunity to do a testimony to the house foreign affairs committee, along with, uh, Tyler Andrews Vargas and, and some other phenomenal people, Aiden Gunderson. And, uh, it was a real honor to testify to the house foreign affairs committee. Both, both sides were there, Republican and Democrat. So it was a full committee. It was covered by a lot of, uh, media, and I know a lot of our veteran community, our military family community, our intelligence communities, particularly those who were involved in the Afghanistan withdrawal, um, were there, were watching. Many were in attendance. And it was one of the most um, honor, humbling, I think is probably the right word. It was one of the most humbling uh, events of my life to be able to render testimony um, of how I felt about things, but also to try to attempt to represent as best I could uh, a population of, of veterans and military family members and active duty members who felt a sense of betrayal by the way this went down and who felt that it was wrong. And um, it, was, it was humbling to do it. I was less than impressed with the way that it was received, particularly in comments from the congressional officials. I felt like there was more grandstanding and partisan play than there was any meaningful dialogue, um, commitment to action, and, you know, as I write, as I, as I record this right now, there still hasn't been, in my assessment, any meaningful action to, to honor the promise to our Afghan allies, the Afghan Adjustment Act and things like that. So I don't know. It's just been, it's been really frustrating, um, but it was an honor to give that testimony. And I like to think that that testimony, I had one uh, individual who was a veteran write me unsolicited and say that it really provided him with kind of an end to the war, that other than that, there had not been a real end to the war, and that that testimony uh, that day uh, offered him closure. And I hope so. I hope it did. Um, I know for a lot of folks, they're still struggling right now. They're, it's a gutting experience. Their mental health issues are climbing through the roof. There were 88,000 calls to the VA hotline in March. Um, the numbers of suicide have skyrocketed with veterans and military family members. I've personally lost a dear friend, Brad, to suicide. And his wife told me, uh, Dana, that at least some, ver some, some measure of this was attributed to the collapse in Afghanistan. I still have texts on my phone from him that haunt me that he sent me during the Afghanistan collapse. I could tell that his heart was breaking and it had started a spiral that ended with him being found dead in a hotel room, you know? So it's very, very personal for me. I know it's very, very personal for a lot of you listening to this. Um, a lot of our friends didn't make it out of Afghanistan, and um, we still get um, texts from them. We still get pleas for help. We've lost friends since then. A lot of the volunteer groups um, have cashed in their savings accounts. They've cashed in their kids' college funds. They're really, really struggling uh, to try to make it right with our allies and to try to honor the promise, but yet it still keeps going. There just doesn't seem to be any relief. There doesn't seem to be um, any commitment by our government to step up. So you still have these veterans who are doing the right thing and who are still on the, the world's longest 911 call. And that just seems so, so wrong to me. It just seems so, um, such a tragedy that these individuals who gave so much 
uh, in the war voluntarily are asked, are, are, you know, have, are put in a position where they have to step in and do what our government should have been doing all along. And as a result of that, there has been a, a, a pretty bad moral injury, not pretty bad, terrible moral injury. A moral injury is an injury on the soul. It's a violation of what one knows to be right. And it's violated uh, either by, by the circumstances you're put in, or in this case, by the people that you trusted, by the politicians, the diplomats, the senior military officials who we trusted to do the right thing, who frankly, we did their bidding for 20 years. We, we did what they asked us to do uh, willingly and without question. And we were held to a certain account when it came to working by, with, and through indigenous forces, in this case, the Afghans. We were held to a standard that you are Shona Bashona. You are shoulder to shoulder with them. You do not leave them in a lurch on the battlefield. For Green Berets, we were conditioned on this from the time we went through the Special Forces Qualification Course. But all of a sudden, in August, on August 15, 2021, that shit was just thrown out the window, right? The policy changed. And so everything about what we were supposed to do that was morally right, I guess, changed with it. And... Everybody went silent. The senior officers, the generals, the politicians, the admirals, the diplomats who, who were in positions of authority, who held their junior officers and NCOs to this account of taking care of your allies and never abandoning them, all of a sudden went silent when the Biden administration's decision to leave Afghanistan involved abandoning our allies without warning. And it was gutting, man. It has created, in my um, estimate, a moral injury that we don't even begin to understand. And I said this in my congressional testimony. I said that we were on the front end of a mental health tsunami with our veteran population. Uh, and I stand by that more than ever, particularly after touring the country with our play last out. I have looked in the eyes. I have heard the stories. I am convinced more than ever that we are on the front end of a veteran and military family mental health tsunami. It is, it is something that is bigger than, than what we can understand. And as <laughs> at the same time, we have this complete tone deaf and just dissonance with our senior leaders uh, in politics, in diplomacy, certainly in the military. There is just this vast chasm between the leaders and the lead. And when I wrote Operation Pineapple Express, you know, I, uh, I, I interviewed dozens and dozens and dozens of iconic NCOs and officers from the global war on terror. And they all said the same thing to the man and to the woman is that they were disgusted by what happened. Where were the generals? Why did the generals not step forward and put their rank on the table? And that if they had a choice, their son or their daughter would not serve in the military. And, and there were a few that um, still, including my kid, still serves. But, you know, it, it, it was just because it was such a level of betrayal. Yet I had a senior officer who I thought very, very highly of for a very long time say at a banquet, um, you know, there's a lot of you out there that are kind of talking about betrayal from the Afghanistan uh, event. You need to just knock that off. It makes you look like a victim. This is coming from one of the most senior officers in the Afghanistan war and in the United States military, who was like a father figure to me to say that, that you look like a victim after we nearly lost our businesses, cashed in our livelihoods to help keep our allies alive. That was the response. And to me, it is endemic of what's happening in recruiting right now. It is endemic of what's happening with retention right now. It is endemic of what is happening with readiness right now. It's in the toilet, right? It's in the toilet. And you have senior officers scratching their heads saying, I don't understand it. It must be the youth today. The youth today just don't have a propensity to serve. That's fucking bullshit. That, that's bullshit. They're, I mean, they're, yes, they have their challenges like every generation of youth does, but to blame this on the youth? No, this rests squarely on the shoulders of senior leaders in our institutions right now, to include the United States military, right? And, and the fact that there was deafening silence during the abandonment of our allies, if you think that that did not resonate with these young people, right? If you think that these fathers and mothers and uncles and, and, and aunts who served didn't share that with their kids, you are deluded. 
you're absolutely deluded. It was an overt, overt violation of the moral code of a volunteer military, particularly when you are prosecuting a war that is dependent on working by, with, and through indigenous people and building a partner nation capacity. Every, every single pillar of the campaign strategy of both Iraq and Afghanistan was rooted in that. And then to overtly violate it and do a serve pro like it never even happened is it is deluded. Like it is so delusional. And, and for both active duty and retired sergeants, major admirals and generals and full colonels for you to scratch your head and act like, well, I don't get it. What's the deal? You know, I've had, I've had special operations senior personnel say to me, Hey man, you guys just need to get over it. Right? Just get over it. Move on. And it's like, no, fuck that. You know? That's not how it works. It's not how it works. And the more these senior leaders dig in on that position and continue to ignore the moral injury as if it didn't occur, you're going to see more and more of this. Not only that, it's affecting, it is affecting national security, right? At the same time that you have this moral injury and this slap in the face of the veteran population affecting retention, readiness, and recruiting, you have a resurgence of terrorism, not just in the Middle East, but honing in on Afghanistan, where it all started, right? Where the worst attack in American history started from. You have it re-emanating from there. You have over 20 violent extremist groups operating there with impunity, right? You have tactics, techniques, and procedures that are making their way into other places of the Middle East and will ultimately likely make themselves manifested right here in the United States and in the West. And then, boy, will this administration own this one. And boy, will those officers and senior enlisted advisors who sat silent have something on their chest, man. I don't even know how you deal with that. Um, but that's where I feel like we are. That's just my, that's just my take on it. it, it, it we are now at a... At a, at a, at a at an inflection point where there's this dissonance and, and you now have this national outcry for from the formal institutions that hey we need we need a national call to arms we need a national call to service we have got to get mobilized and get our young people serving how about this fuck you right you want me to do that when you are not going to even personally own the abandonment of our allies the way that went down. You want me to just sweep that all under the rug and stand up and start telling people to serve, right? I'm not doing that. I'm not going to tell them not to serve. Like I said, it runs deep in my family, right? Service runs deep in my family like it does so many of the families listening to this podcast. But for these institutional leaders to sit there and say, we need veterans to do this, you have not done what you know you need to do. Now, if you're listening to this, you know who you are. You know what? You know who you are, right? Just do the right thing, right? Own up to this. Start taking some personal responsibility in restoring the trust that you have broken with so many veterans over the abandonment in Afghanistan. And maybe, maybe look, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm the only person who feels this way. I don't think so, but maybe I am. Maybe I am. Maybe I'm taking a position that's unreasonable, right? But I don't think so. I don't think so. I think you could walk this whole shit back to the way we handled our allies in Kabul and more importantly, the deafening silence that followed by our senior leaders who we fucking trusted for 20 years to stand up for us at a moment when somebody needed to take a stand. They didn't. And now... They're reaping a recruiting, and look, this affects all of us. I get it. This affects national readiness. This affects national security. But that does not obviate institutional leaders from stepping up and doing the right thing. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And we as citizens, we need to demand that. We need to demand that at the polls. We need to demand that in every public platform that we can find, right? And, and if there's going to be a restoration of trust, I've done a lot of work on restoring trust and listen, it's not the serve pro technique. Well, it ne- like it never even happened. You don't just declare, okay, Mulligan, let's try again. How about some trust in recruiting, folks? Mm-mm, doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. So whatever senior leaders 
are going to lead this effort. And I, I agree. I think a private-public partnership towards recruiting, towards retention is needed. But it's going to take some atonement and restoration from institutional leaders before that's possible. That's all I'm saying. Whew. That was a long one. But yeah, honoring promises in 2023 was all-encompassing, it seemed like. And the next way that we did that was we told some stories. You know, one of the things I realized about myself um, (laughs) fairly early on in the Pineapple Express was that in so many ways, I was woefully, (laughs) fuck, I was woefully equipped to lead that effort. I mean, look, I've been out of the army for 10 years now. And, uh, you know, I was decent at what I did. I was pretty good at organizing efforts um, and mobilizing people and building rapport. And I was pretty good at uh, battle tracking and extraction and, and a lot of the remote work that Pineapple required. But, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been mostly working as a storyteller, public speaker. So I'm not like your number one choice or draft pick for, you know, personnel recovery. <laughs> and I knew it. Like, I, I didn't I didn't pursue this. I think a lot of us feel that way. We, we had many other things that we would much rather be doing, but we saw that nobody was coming, so we decided to try to do something. Um, but I quickly saw early on, I was not, you know, this was not a long-term endeavor for me. In fact, Task Force Pineapple and I talk about this when we, um, if, you, if you get a chance, pick up a, pick up a, uh, a soft cover copy, a, a, a paperback copy of Pineapple Express. It, there's a new epilogue in there that talks about kind of the behind the scenes of what happened after Pineapple to include a ton of failures. Man, I made so many mistakes. Uh, I had to cancel the whole nonprofit effort at one point, but it talks about the behind the scenes for the testimony. I hope you'll pick it up. It's, it's, um, there's, there's some interesting stuff in there. And, um, but anyway, uh, I realized that there, that my strength was not in case management of Afghan allies. My strength was not in managing a task force. Those days had long gone. Um, I was already feeling the physical and mental and spiritual um, uh, effects of Operation Pineapple Express. I was not on a good path. So friends of mine staged an intervention, and, and I got back to what I am good at and I do have the resilience for, which is storytelling. Uh, our nonprofit, The Hero's Journey, is a nonprofit that helps warriors, first responders, and their families find their voice and tell their story. And look, I was doing this well before the Afghanistan collapse. I mean, in addition to rooftop leadership, the hero's journey is my other flagship and how I navigate the world. And the rooftop leadership is all about, you know, uh, better impact through deeper human connections. So that's the for-profit side. And then on the nonprofit side is it's helping warriors find their voice, tell their story. And it all comes from the experiences that I developed as a Green Beret, particularly around interpersonal skills, particularly around storytelling. And so one of the ways that we had really um, put ourselves out there prior to the Afghanistan collapse was I realized I had such a bad, dark transition. I almost took my own life. I dealt with massive depression, a lot of survivor's guilt. Um, I realized that storytelling had really uh, had a big impact on me. I had some wonderful mentors who showed me the power of storytelling, both the art and the science of it. And it saved my life. It changed my life. And one of those mentors, Bo, had written a play about becoming an NFL football player. And he had convinced me, along with a few other folks, to write my own one-person play that eventually became a four-person play that eventually became a six-person play. Uh, when COVID shut it down after we toured 16 cities in 2019, putting 28,000 miles on a U-Haul van, we raised a quarter million dollars with our nonprofit and we made a, a film, a low budget film that's on Amazon Prime. And it was Last Out Elegy of a Green Beret. And the whole idea was I wanted to inform civilians on the cost and impact of war, politicians as well, while simultaneously uh, showing our veterans and our military families that what they did mattered to heal, to validate, um, to help them let go of the pain, all of it through storytelling. And I wanted to do it with an all veteran, all military family member cast, only a a professional actor or two, and that's what we did. And this thing did pretty darn well. And then it was in the Afghanistan collapse when we were evacuating people towards the end of it. I had written a a, a letter to President Biden in 2021 on Veterans Day, Um, a letter to the president from your veterans. 
which of course no one in the administration ever answered, ever. Uh, by the way, it was in the Military Times, <laughs> and it had all, I don't even know how many thousands of hits and you know likes and comments, but none from the White House, not one. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm pretty sure about this. Somebody fact check me, tell me if I'm wrong in the comments, but I'm pretty sure that the administration to this point, as of the recording of this in December of 2023, there still has not been any real formal acknowledgement from the White House, the commander in chief in the States of the Union about the veterans, the active duty, the intelligence professionals who stood up for our Afghan allies during the collapse, or even a deep acknowledgement of their efforts in the war on terror. That's like three states of the union that have not been any. And you wonder why your recruiting and your retention sucks. Not because we need a pat on the back, my man, but to acknowledge what's been done, right? But hadn't happened. Um, what the hell was I talking about? Jeez. Anyway, doesn't matter. We did the tour. We did the extractions. And in the, in, the, in the aftermath of that, after I'd written that letter, that's what I was talking about. After I'd written the letter to the president, one of the guys that saw it was a guy named John Androsik from Five for Fighting. John reached out to me, and uh, he was, it turned out he was helping to evacuate some uh, Afghan musicians. And so we got to be friends, and at some point I shared the film, Last Out, Elegy of a Green Beret, with him, the link, and he watched it, and he was like, oh my God, man, that's, that's incredible. Gary Sinise says, needs to see this. And I told him, Bro, I've been trying to get this in front of Gary Sinise for six years now. So good luck with that. He said, no, he's a friend of mine. I can get it in front of him. Okay, sure. Whatever you say. Well, damn, if not a, like three days later, I didn't get uh, February 2023. Uh, February 2022, I'm sorry. I got a text from Gary. Uh, John had shared my number. Hey, Scott, can you talk? And right about where I am right now in this driveway, I was talking to Gary. And for two hours, we talked about... Forrest Gump and Lieutenant Dan and his book, Grateful American, and the, the chapter in there about st uh, tracers, where he, for the first time, directed a play about the Vietnam War with, you know, some Vietnam veterans in it, written by John DeFusco called Tracers, and how it had so much affected his life and how it had healed those Vietnam veterans in the audience at Steppenwolf in Chicago. And I said, Gary, that's what we've done with Last Out. And he said, I know, I watched it on the film. This is a modern day Tracers. And I was so moved by that. And he said, hey, what do you think if we actually uh, put this thing out uh, on tour again, but we kicked it off in Steppenwolf where it started? I, guys, my jaw hit the ground, man. I mean, you know, I'm not like a, a traditional man of the theater, but I have come to love theater. I've come to love that craft of acting. And, and I have such a deep respect for those who practice it and commit their life to it. And Steppenwolf is iconic as theaters go. I mean, it's one of the most fantastic theaters in the world. There's actors that would give their eye teeth to be walking those boards. And here I was being offered a chance by Gary Sinise to perform the play that had you know, only been around for a couple of years. And I said, of course we would do that, man. I was so moved out to, to tears. And I said, Gary, you know, we are at a rough place in this country right now. Our, our country is hurting. Our veterans are hurting. Our military families are hurting. These, these men and women are asking themselves if it was worth it, if the loss of their friend was worth it, if the loss of their limb was worth it, if the loss of their marriage was worth it, the time with their kids. They shouldn't be asking that as veterans. They shouldn't be asking that. Even if, even if the policy change, you know, was at the heart of the reason of it, okay, fine. But, but what these men and women did and how they performed and what they enabled should never be called into question. That's not right. And I said, we're going we're gonna to reap it if we, don't, if we don't help that. And by the way, you've got all these civilians in the country, no harm intended, but they're just turning the page, right? They're just turning the page on, on these veterans and the 20 years that they fought and stood up for this country while everybody else went to Walmart and Target, you know? And, and we're going to turn around and we're going to do it again. Only this time, it's going to be our sons fighting the war we didn't finish. And Gary, this play is about that. He said, I know, I know it is. You know, and, and he said, we need to put it on the road. We'll take it to Steppenwolf and then I'll sponsor the tour. You build the production and that's what we did. And we shook hands. You guys, we never signed a contract on that thing. We just went, you know, and, and this is something I want to, I want to kind of, I want to kind of pause for a second here. And I just want to, I want to share with you what, what that meant to me at that point in my life. This guy had never met me. Well, we met briefly at an event, but not really. Gary had never met me. You know, he was taking an enormous risk on me, 
But because his friend, John Androsik, said, this guy's the real deal, you need to do this, he called me, right? And in that conversation, we connected around, I had studied his work, you know, and I knew what he valued. And what he valued was service. And what he valued was, you know, telling the story. And he had done that. And so I brought up Tracers and talked about how it had influenced me as a, as a budding playwright and given me hope and inspiration. And that clicked within us. An immediate connection was made. And that's so important to all of this, right? Because we're going to get into this in 2024, but human connections at the most personal level, what's personal is universal. Gary is an actor. He's never served. He has a family members that serve, but he's never served. He is a definite patriot and a grateful American. And I spent my entire life in the military. I had only acted for a few years. Gary had acted his entire life since high school. But we found connection points, right? And it was on those connection points that we built this amazing plan together. And his team and my team, they're the ones that really had to do the heavy lifting. They're the ones that had to just, God, move heaven and earth to make this production happen. But they did. We performed a couple of warm-ups in Tampa and D.C. And then not long from now, this time last year, in 2023, we kicked off in Steppenwolf Theater. Two nights. Sold-out performances both nights. Standing ovations both nights. The impact was tremendous. A Marine stood up in the talkback, which we held after every show, and said that this has done more for him than 10 years of therapy at the VA. That's the kind of feedback we got on the road every place that we went. That's what storytelling does, right? And the ability to tell that story. Nine cities with Gary, 16 cities in 2019 before that. Thousands attended the show. We performed it for over 100 families of the fallen. A massive, massive strategic reach to include Lester Holt, Mike Rowe, Jim Chudo of CNN, Fox and Friends, various documentaries. It, it, it reached people at a national level, international level, including Afghans. The impact and the talkback was where you could always feel it. Claire, uh, a young Irish woman who had grown up in the war in Northern Ireland, said that she had always had so weapons pointed at her as a child, and she hated soldiers for that. She feared them desperately. And she said, after this play, I will never look at soldiers with that kind of distrust again. I will look at them with a different lens, one of admiration, you know? And God, it just, Gary, I have to say this, he made that happen, and it was pure human connection and trust. He would text me before every show, How's it going, pal? What do you need? And, you know, to this day, we're still friends as a result of that. And I'm so grateful to him for that. But, you know, even when the tour ended with Gary in Topeka in October, Monty looked at me, my wife, and she said, baby, we've got to keep this going. We've got to keep this going. It's having such an impact. And I said, baby, how are we going to do that? We don't have the money for this. We don't, this thing's expensive, you know? And so we decided we were going to bring it home to Tampa. We would figure it out as we went. And we raised money the best we could. And we announced that the play was coming to Tampa in December of 2023 for one last performance before the end of the year. And I went to um, New York City, or excuse me, Nashville for an awards and uh, award ceremony. Uh, and Frank Siller from Tunnel to Towers, the founder of Tunnel to Towers, was there. Told him about the play. He already knew about Pineapple Express. And he said, you know what? I got you covered, man. Go do that show. You know what? Do that show, bring that healing, we're at your shoulder. So we were able to do that, raise money for 2024 so that we can do more workshops, more plays in 2024, right? It just kept going. It just kept moving forward. We even added an Afghan actor to the mix to bring an Afghan voice to it, Fahim uh, Fosley, an amazing Afghan-American actor, served as an interpreter, three tours of duty uh, in Afghanistan and is back out in Hollywood right now the healing, the validation, the informing. It, it happened in such a big way and it left me with such a sense of, wow, there's an ever-growing need of this kind of storytelling, this kind of impact out there in the world and we're going to keep going. I also had the opportunity to uh, help with the Hawaii upswing, the terrible wildfires that blew through West Maui. Um, I had a um, kind of cryptic e e text from a former pineapple buddy of mine who also had Hollywood connections and also had 
Hawaii connections after the, uh, after the fires ravaged Maui and left scores of people dead and wounded and, and just that whole area just destroyed and wondering what to do. And unfortunately, the way the world does and the way the United States does, they paid attention for a little while. And then the next event, they just moved on. And that's kind of where, where I got brought in. And this buddy of mine said, Hey, what if we did kind of a task force pineapple thing, but with, but with Hawaii? And he introduced, he introduced me to these two young brothers out in Maui, uh, amazing uh, locals there. They're epic surfers and leaders and speakers. They come from a family of surfers and windsurfers. More importantly, they're intrinsic in the community. There's uh, uh, Zane and Maddie, and I got connected to those guys. I then got connected to some other um, amazing Hawaiian uh, uh, citizens of Maui, uh, Deb, uh, Pastor Sean, who was out there doing epic work. We kind of uh, gelled around them using Signal, of all things, just like we did with Task Force Pineapple. Uh, Big Earl and his amazing podcast and show was also leaning in on this, so we collaborated with them. We formed an even bigger network. And damn, if Will Kane from Fox and Friends on the weekends, who has very, very deep ties to Maui, was already doing epic work out there, raising money, he came in to Task Force Lahaina. Uh, ben and Jess from Flanders Fields, and I'm going to talk more about them in a minute, but Ben Owen and Jess Owen, they, they got so involved, they actually flew out to Maui, right, and helped connect services and supplies. Uh, Amy, uh, in her volunteer organization, was moving heaven and earth to get stuff out there, whether it was generators, uh, stuff to help with the, uh, with the breathing that the first responders were doing out there. I mean, just you name it, building supplies to build new houses. Um, it was all happening. But I think kind of the pinnacle of it, at least for me, was when Will Kane worked with the other volunteer organizations in Lahaina and a, an anonymous donor, and they flew uh, a, a, like a Boeing jet out there just loaded with supplies, and he even covered it on Fox and Friends. We'll try to find the link for you. But it just showed me the power of this bottom-up approach, this bottom-up effort to, to, to find that upswing that Putnam talks about, to get to better days, and how even when nobody's coming to save you, you can still get big shit done, right? And, and Task Force Lahaina is still doing that to this day, the same way that so many of the vo volunteer organizations for Afghanistan under moral compass are working to get things done in Ukraine and, and with the Israeli-Hamas war that's going on right now. Like, it's, it's, it's incredible, right? What bottom-up power can do, and the Task Force Lahaina piece forever changed lives and saved lives. I had the opportunity to fight some monsters in 2023. I got to be really, really good friends, Monty and I did, with Ben and Jess Owens. We went out to see them multiple times in South Memphis. These are former addicts who have started a nonprofit called Flanders Fields that helps veterans and uh, we fight monsters that helps uh, overcome the, the human trafficking and drug addiction and homelessness. And what do they do? They go right back to South Memphis where they lived on the streets and nearly died in these trap houses and they're buying them back. It's called Buy Back the Block. And they're turning them into halfway houses. They're turning dope houses into hope houses, right? And here's the thing. Nobody's coming. They, they, they saw the hopelessness that was happening in those areas. They saw the way that most of civil society had moved on past them. And they have found a way to use digital technology, immense marketing skills, human connection skills, and storytelling to build this massive movement of tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people to get behind this effort to buy back the block. And all you got to do is check out We Fight Monsters or Flanders Fields, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Like, they are doing this shit in real time. They just did a holiday Christmas thing where they brought, uh, where they brought basically Santa Claus to poverty conditions and, and did so much for the kids that are living in these areas and to provide meals for those moms and dads that are struggling. And help came from all over the country. Help came from you. Right? Live saved, live changed. That's leadership in action. I got to see that firsthand. I got to see it firsthand. I get to see it every time I'm around Ben and Jess. And these are former addicts that nearly died in those trap houses. Yet they have found a way to save and change lives. They have found a way to navigate to better days. They have found their Pineapple Express. They know how to move to that upswing. I lost some friends this year. I lost some friends who died. You expect that. But I also just lost some friends who dismissed themselves from my life, probably more than I ever have. And I'm going to be honest with you, I'm still struggling with that. 
I don't understand it. It hurts. Um, there's so much that I just, I, I'm trying to get my head around that I still can't figure out. It was a gutting, gutting experience. Um, people who I was very, very close to, I mean, who I would give my shirt to, um, uh, acted in ways that I never expected. Dear, dear friends. And to the extreme that either they dismissed themselves from my life or I had to cut away from them or both. Uh, I'm not going to get into the details of it. It doesn't matter. And I think to do that just takes me back into that mire and muck, not where I want to be. And I do believe that leads to victimhood when you, when you do, you know, uh, harp on betrayal. I go back to what that senior officer said about you guys are talking about betrayal. Um, it makes you look like a victim. And there may be some truth in that, except for the fact that everybody sitting in that room were people who volunteered, were people who st stepped forward time and time again and did what they were asked. These are people, in my estimation, including myself, who are not comfortable with moral injury. We are destined for moral recovery, moving to moral recovery so that we can have the greatest impact we can in this world that we live in before we check out. I think that's what most veterans, was first, first responders, uh, probably everybody listening to this podcast, it's why you listen to this podcast, is you want to leave tracks. You want to make an impact in this world before you check out. You want your legacy to be known, right? You want to play a game bigger than yourself. But in order to do that, you've got to, you have to execute in a big way. You have to do big things. And that requires oftentimes doing things that are uncomfortable, things that are scary, uh, things that make you feel like you're out over your skis, you know, uh, things that put you on the stage when you don't necessarily want to be on the stage. I think about Operation Pineapple Express. Man, I, I walked this driveway how many times? Sometimes in tears, just talking to you guys about how I felt like I was just out over my skis. I wasn't sure what to do next. Same with the play. When Gary Sinise called me and told me he wanted the tour, I mean, shit, I was terrified. In San Diego, he was sitting out in the audience watching the damn play. Lieutenant Dan watching the play. You know, me with my whopping one and a half years of acting experience. <laughs> I was terrified. You know, it was scary as hell. And the stakes were so high so many different times. And the propensity for failure was so high. You know, and, and I, I look at these people that dismissed themselves from my life in various ways. And, you know, I don't blame them. Like, I don't, I don't harbor any resentment against them. I really don't. Because... I don't, you know, I don't know what the world looks like through their lens. But I do know that it was a very, very harsh experience. I think some left because of money issues that were at play. And this was a nonprofit for all things, which just amazes me. But okay, um, you know, it was, but I think some of it was that, was, was finances. I think some people uh, walked away because, or just displayed behavior that I couldn't hang around uh, because of their allegiance or their loyalty to their industry or to their craft, um, that they're, they're in the industry that they're in, you know, I, I'm not going to get real specific on it because I, I don't want to offend anybody in this particular case. It's not worth it. But there are certain industries out there that are involved in the play last out that just, they, they just kind of operate a different way, man. They, they just have a different metric and a way of navigating the world <laughs> than veterans do. I'll just leave it at that. You know, the, the way that they view themselves, the way that they view the community around them, it's just different, right? It's just different. It's just, they're not, they're not, they don't, they don't operate the same way that warfighters and veterans do and their families do. And it caused friction, right? That's one of the challenges, honestly, if I'm being completely candid with the play was we had this um, almost island of misfit toys, man, with the play you had you know, combat veterans that had TBIs and, and survivor's guilt and PTS, you know, in there with industry specialists from all over. And usually it worked like a charm. The diversity actually was beautiful. The diversity of thought, uh, the diversity of background, it was so eclectic and cool. And most of the time it operated amazingly well. But sometimes there were just untenable differences that caused different people to walk away, to split away. And it hurt because it felt like friendships were lost in that. And that's for me, that's what it was more than anything else. It was the loss of friends, you know, um, 
But these losses were attributed to money. They were attributed to industry and, and uh, other professions. I think in some cases control. There were, there were, there were elements of control that just were um, in dispute. And, uh, and that was tough for some people. Um, and then, the, you know, others were just unknown. Some people just left and I couldn't figure it out. It hurt. Maybe it was me. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I've been in uh, recovery quite some time now. But hey, I know I am many times the problem. <laughs> I could be the problem. And so I'm sure there were elements of me involved in that, you know. But I, I guess for me, more than anything else, it was, it was a lot of people, not in the scheme. I mean, in the scheme of things, it wasn't a, a, a ton of folks, but it was enough to hurt. It was enough that I've, I've never, um, I've never said goodbye to so many friends. At the same time that everything that we were doing was just going to great scale, you know, impact was. We've never had the kind of impact that we've had at Rooftop and that we've had at the Hero's Journey and Last Out that we had this year ever. The, the number of lives changed, the number of lives saved, um, it was massive. But at the same time there were friends who couldn't come for the ride. And I'd always heard that from mentors of mine who were high performers and who were trying to do something bigger than themselves. They would say, look, there's people that you love dearly that won't be able to come for the ride, man. So just get ready. And boy, did that happen. And I guess I'm only bringing that up because you're, you're probably building something. You're probably in the middle of it right now. And maybe you've already had some people dismiss themselves from your lives. Maybe they're family. Maybe they're people you love dearly, um, but they just can't come. You know, they just can't come on the ride like they, they, because of their own fear or their own insecurities or whatever, whatever it is, it just keeps them from coming on the ride. And the way that I kind of, my metric for it, and it got to be kind of difficult, but you know, that's the loneliness of leadership when you're building a movement is if, if ego gets in the way, you cannot stay. Like that's it. That's just kind of my mantra. If ego gets in the way, you cannot stay. If your individual needs and wants and goals usurp the collective goals of what this movement is, you can't stay. You can't be part of it. It doesn't mean that your goals and your needs aren't important. They are. But it simply means that there clearly is not the chemistry, the organic chemistry in place for you to nest those needs with this greater good. You just can't do it. You need to go do what you do so that you can express fully those individual needs and goals. Perhaps it's starting your own movement. Perhaps it's doing it your way. Perhaps it's doing it for more money. Perhaps it's doing it um, with, um, you know, professionals who are in your neck of the woods, like whatever. But it's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. There's no hard feelings about it. But I do think it is an absolute reality and something that we have to be mindful of when we're navigating this world is that, some people can't come for the ride, man. Or some people will come for part.